Um, so my talk primarily focuses on, on forensics, but we have applications in, in other areas of um, security as well. Um, but primarily for forensics, much of the valuable information that an investiga investigator might want to have is currently not available. And this is partly due to the fact that the information simply isn't there, or it's not there and it's not recorded, or it could be that um, it has to be derived by correlation, which can be tedious and error-prone. Um, so during this talk, I'm going to raise the question of what the desired information actually is um, when performing a digital investigation. Um, and in the second part of my talk, I'm actually going to focus on, on two of these pieces of information, which is user influence and location information. So in the first part, I'm just going to explore a little bit of what kind of information do we actually want off a system as a forensic investigator. Um, then I'm going to introduce a model that uses labels to track information on a system present some case studies about that, discuss the implementation, and then conclude and present some future work. In digital forensics, usually um, you're concerned with retrieving and analyzing digital evidence. And existing tools focus primarily on, on the actual retrieval of that information. And that, that is a... Um, pretty straightforward goal because you um, have to see what you can get off the system, what's actually there in order to analyze it. But apparently nobody has asked the questions, what kind of extra information would you want to have if you could for a forensic investigator to make your investigations more easy? Um, so usually the information retrieved from a system is either stored on the file system metadata itself or in the logs and given that information, you, you basically only have a small snapshot of the system. You cannot really determine some of the answers of questions you would like to have asked, uh, you would like to have answered. There we go. So before I actually go into the area of what the information is that we want, here's a quick classification of the desired information that is either there or not there. So the first category is information that is available on a system and is actually recorded explicitly on non-volatile media. And an example of this would be the file access modification and change times of a file system. In the next category, we have information that is available, but it's not explicitly recorded. For example, this could be the user ID of, of the person who modifies a file. The system knows about it. But when actually an operation on a file is performed, this information is not recorded anymore. The next category is information that is not available to the system, but that we can probably make available. And an example of this might be location information. Current computing systems do not really have a sense of what location is, but one can make some of that probably available. And the last category is information that we might want but it's actually impossible to be obtained. And I'm actually going to get into that aspect a little bit later on. 
So what, what, do we want, what do we want as a forensic investigator? And of course, it really depends on the kind of investigation that, that we are doing. Um, it could range from simply locating contraband material to a full-fledged investigation of, of a break-in trying to figure out what happened. And in the most general case, we want answers to all these questions. Who did what, from where, when, how was it done, and why was it done? And I threw in the why there, um, but usually you have to answer all the other questions and then make a guess as, as to why the attacker or criminal or who knows what did his actions the way he actually did. Um, so now I'm just going to go through most of, of these and give suggestions um, explaining why we want the information and give suggestions as to how we can rectify this. I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to solve all these things, um, but I'm just going to discuss um, what is wrong with some of the existing information and what we can do about it. So the first question is, is the when, and that's an easy one. Um, because most file systems actually carry timestamps. They're called MAC times, which stands for Modify, Access, and Change Times. And they're being stored as metadata of the file system. However, um, MAC times simply emerged from the need for different tools, like um, archiving tools, backup tools, um, compile tools, and all that. And actually, there's no really standard for, for any of those. So on, on different systems, you actually have different um, kinds of files um, of, of timestamps. For example, on, on Windows NT, uh, on NTFS, you have an explicit creation time, which Linux does not have. Linux has a delete time, which Windows does not have, and so on. Plus, um, we have misleading names of the timestamps. Sometimes the C part of the MAC time is called a create time, but in essence, it's really a change time. It is updated when the metadata of the file um, actually changes, which initially is a creation time. But if you do things like change permissions on the file, then that change time is updated also. Plus, timestamps are very easily changed. There are user land tools you can do. You can, there's a touch command which changes the the access time, the change mod time, um, changes the, the change time, the C part. Um, you can edit a file to change the modification time and so forth. And in addition to that, only the latest operation, only the timestamp for the latest operation is kept. So everything that was before that is, is gone. So what can we do about, about the when part? First of all, you should have standard timestamps available on your system, which should include a create, a delete, an access, a modify, and the change time. Then um, these timestamps should not be able to, should not be subject to alteration from a user, which means that the system has to keep us and they can be modified. And if you still need timestamps that the tools I mentioned, the backup tools, or, or whatever tools they need, then you can have extra timestamps in user land that, that fulfill that role. Um, 
And the last point is, ideally, you want to keep timestamps for all operations that took place. Now, this, this can take space because many files are accessed quite frequently or other files are modified frequently. Um, but you can categorize things. Um, if you have files that you do not expect to be modified in a frequent manner, you can, mo uh, you can, you can lock the modification times for that. And if there is frequent activity, that should stand out. The same goes for access for certain files you don't expect to be accessed all that much. And all of that depends on the system policy. So the next category of information is, is the how question. So how did things happen on a system? And basically I want to ask which programs were used to perform an action on a file? And it should make a difference whether notepad.exe was used or, or a program called backdoor.exe in order to create a file, for example. And these programs act on behalf of the user, and I call them controlling agents. And there can be a chain of those. So you can have a chain of programs executed and then perform an, an operation on a file. So for example, from the command line, you invoke the explorer, which, which then calls WinM to play an MP3, an MP3 file. And ideally, again, we want to store the entire chain of, of those agents for, for file operations. And again, space considerations are, are an issue here. What happened? So if you modify a file, then what was the actual nature of the chain? Usually, you just know it's, it's, it's been modified at this time, but what was actually done to the file? Um, especially if executables were replaced, what's, what's the contents, well, what's, what's the actions of the new, new executable? So you could do that by storing hashes, if, if spaces of concern, of each program that executes an operation on a file. And then later, you could piece that back together to known versions of, of good files or even known versions or known hashes of, of malicious files. Or you could store the entire nature of the change of the file within the metadata and sort of keep a delta list of changes that were performed on a file. And once again, space is an issue here. And it depends on how much space you're willing to, to devote to this. And you also need a policy of what you do when you run out of space for, for all these. So coming to the more interesting, at least to me, questions are, who is actually responsible for actions on a system? So many systems, except for MS-DOS, usually have a notion of, of a user on a system. And they're being assigned some sort of identifier at, at login. And the reason the user IDs are there lie primarily in access control. Um, there's a set of permissions stored with the file, and there's a set of permissions stored with the user, and only a process who has the right permissions can, can execute or, or access the file. Um, so what is called the owner of a file doesn't have to be necessarily be the person who actually created or modified the file, which from a security standpoint is not really that satisfying. Sometimes you can make deductions about who was doing things to a file by correlating log entries, like this user logged in between 
8 and 9, and the file was modified at 840, 840 and you, you can make a, make a guess that it was probably this user who, who did stuff to the file. Um, but how can you know for sure? Um, so you might say, well, since we have all this timestamp information, we can just record the user information with the timestamp as well. And we have solved the problem. But it's, it's unfortunately a little bit more complicated than, than just that. So for, for example, in this scenario, user A um, reads the contents of file one, then uses inter-process communication to con convey that content to user B, who creates file two from the contents there. And if you look at file two now and its metadata, then we only know about user B having anything to do with it and its creation and its content. And the entire notion that user A actually played a crucial role in the creation of this file is, is lost to the system. So we can't really just stick the timestamp of, of the user ID of the process who did stuff in there and then we're done. And I'm gonna get back to this a little bit later. Professor, yes? It really should be a process, right? It should be a controlling agent in the user A and the user B. They are what? The user should be the program or the controlling well, agent in, in, your, in your term. Well, ideally you want both, right? You want to you want to have the idea of the user as well. You, you don't simply just want the the program that created it. So now I just remember the IPC will be used for intercommunication between processes. Yes. Yes. If the the circle we can see as as the process used by user A, I don't know if it, or user A logged in and then keep on. It, it's the user ID associated with that process at this point. Yes, ideally we want to record all this stuff I, I earlier mentioned, but right now I'm just focusing on, on the, the identity part. Um, the, the last interesting piece of information is actually where did things come from? And by this I mean both the origin of files as well as the location of where a user actually might be when controlling a process, meaning from where did he log in. Um, so some systems keep in incomplete information and then really not satisfactory information about this. For example, on Unix systems you have the UTEMP file, which is set um, when a user logs in, but it only stores a string of, of the network location of the user and it's, it's a fixed size so it's frequently truncated and it's, it's stored in a file which is subject to modification as well. Plus there are some third-party extensions. TCP wrappers is an access control mechanism for um, network servers which allow you to allow or deny network connections based on um, IP addresses and ports. Um, globally unique identifiers were introduced to be part of Word documents or Office documents which contain a timestamp and the location information. So as, as these get passed along the system, you, you at least know from where they originated. And uh, Dorothy Denning has a, um, 
I think it's a proposal still of, of utilizing GPS information for access control on the system. But none of these things are actually part of the system. They're third-party extensions. Plus, they're only being used at the perimeter of the system to perform access control decisions. Once you're inside, there's no notion of a location anymore except for whatever you have in that, in that UTEMP file, which is associated with the process. So suppose we are able to just get the origin of files as, as they come into the system. Um, so we have a compiler that was part of the operating system initial distribution from the CD-ROM. We downloaded some library from, from some website. Um, the user typed in some, some C code at the console. And later on, he logged in from a remote location and compiled, a, compiled the C source file into an executable. So even if we are able to, to classify the lo initial location of files, what, what should the location of, of this file be? And ideally, we want to still have a notion of, of all these different locations playing a role for the new location of, or, or from where, where that file actually came from, this executable. Um, so now I'm going to come back to, to these past two examples and kind of motivate my, my thesis research with that. So in both, in, in both cases, we have basically information flowing from, from entities on the system. And in this example, information was flowing to, to the process controlled by user A from the file. Then the information was propagated to user B. And finally, into file two. Same here, all the information from the different files was combined in the session with the compiler, and, inf and that information um, was flowing again into the executable. So we can basically use information flow analysis to make some sort of assortment of either what caused the creation of file two, or which sources were used to create this new file. However, um, if we use information flow analysis, we have the problem that we basically have an entity here. And we can observe its inputs and outputs. And we are supposed to make some projection about the relation of the inputs and outputs. Um, if we use static information flow analysis, we basically analyze all the possible programs that can run. And we have a glimpse of what's going on inside here. And we can, we can make that decision. Static information flow analysis is concerned with analyzing the source code of a program and then determine how information actually flows. But it's limited in the respect that, can only, that you can only execute those programs that you have analyzed on the system in order to make a, make a good case. And this might not be acceptable in, in every situation. Then there's dynamic information flow analysis. And usually, 
dynamic information flow analysis is concerned with actually looking inside of this entity here and trying to figure out what's going on. Because the problem, if you treat that as a black box and you don't know anything what's going on inside and you only can observe inputs and outputs, it is actually undecidable to, to make a statement whether input one or input two is responsible for, for the output. Um, so, <clears throat> my hypothesis is that I don't want to find out what's going on in here because this is expensive as well in terms of performance and um, maybe storage requirements. So my idea is I'm just, I, I don't care um, which of these two is responsible for the output. I'm just going to say both of them are. And therefore, um, my idea is to bind a meaningful label to a principle on the system, such as here, and then propagate this label as information is being exchanged to, to other principles or objects on the system. Um, and the actual nature of the label right now is not important. I'm going to go to that in, in the case studies a little bit. Um, now this graphic is a little bit misleading because it makes you think maybe that, that ooh, it was, was I2 that caused this output. In essence, it, it might have been I1. And this is where false information gets propagated too. Um, even if there's not a label associated with, with that principle there, it might have actually been I1 who caused this output. And in this case, A is, is not really the way the information was truly propagated, but it could have been I2. And this is important information as, we, as, as I will um, show later for, for an investigator. Um, so basically, input and outputs are conveyed through, through channels on the system. If you have principles communicating with each other, and I'm just going to quickly address what Lamson defines um, for its three categories of channels. You have data channels, which are regular channels where you read and write to and they're intended for information exchange on a system. This can be reading, writing to a file, to a, to a pipe, to a socket on a system, all those things. Then we have storage channels. Storage channels utilize shared resources on a system to convey information. And this could only be um, as small as, as one bit at a time. And an example of this is testing for the existence of a file. If two parties have a shared file somewhere and you agree on certain time intervals to check whether the file is there or not. So in time interval one, first party creates the fi file, second party reads it, that's, that's the one bit. Next time interval, maybe he deletes it, checks it's not there anymore, that will be the zero bit. So you can convey one bit of information in each time interval that way. And this is what uh, Lamson calls a storage channel. And then there are covert channels, which are channels that are not intended to convey information at all on a system. And this could be things like increasing and measuring system load. And you can use the same kind of example in each time interval. If a user generates a lot of system load and the other one measures it, that's, that's the one bit, and if there's no extra system activity, that's, that's a zero bit. And those are covert channels. Um, 
the data and storage channels you can determine on a system by using a shared resource matrix. And that was supposed, uh, proposed by, by Kimmerer, and I'm, I'm not getting into that in any more detail. So basically, you can identify those channels. Uh, whereas for covert channels, it's, it's usually not that easy to, to do so. And I will not consider covert channels any in, in the remainder of this work. So given that I want to bind the label to a principle and then propagate it, I, I have a basic model. Um, we have a set of labels, a set of active principles, and a set of objects and channels between principles and principles, as well as principles and objects. There are label sets associated with all the principles, the objects, and the channels themselves. And we have some sort of update function that updates labels as information is being exchanged. Um, I have the following operations, and I'm not going to go into too much detail here. Um, basically, we have the adding of a label, the creation of our subjects on the system. Then we have opening and closing of channels, as well as reading and writing to and from them, and we can destroy principles and, and objects. So during each of those operations, the label sets of the involved parties might or might not have to be updated. Um, for example, if you open up an object for reading, which um, the notation here is that the information flows from the first parameter to the, to the second. So open OP would be opening the channel for reading so P can read from O. Um, so if you do that, then you need to update, for example, the principles label set with the objects. But the objects label set is not affected at all because nothing has happened to the contents of the object yet. Um, if you write to a channel, for example, nothing happens if, if it's, a, it's a channel between principles because the, well, actually, the, the channel gets, gets the label set of the writing process. But the other principle is, is not updated yet because it's an asynchronous operation and you're basically writing into, into a pipe. And only when that information is read again, we update the label set of the second principle. And probably this example is going to make it a little bit clearer. And I hope that that gets recorded OK. So we have this set of operations here. We have an initial state with four principles. Um, first, P1's label set is A. P3's label set is B. Um, plus, we have one object on the system whose label set is C. And as my update function, I'm simply using the label, what is that, uh, the, the set union operator. So we're just unioning labels as we go along. So we have the following operations. Principle 1 creates an object O2, at which point O2 inherits the label set from its principle. Then a write channel is opened and data is written to that object, and the channel is closed. Now P2 opens a reading channel to the object 2, at which point P2 inherits the label from the object, label A. And he reads from the, opens the channel, reads from, from the object and closes the channel. Then um, P1 gets rid of O2, so there's no more O2 on the system. Now P2 creates a new principle, 
who inherits the label set of P2, which is A. Um, P5, the newly created principle, now opens object O1, who had label set C and therefore inherits the label set, reads data, closes the channel. Now, um, channel between process P3 and P5 is opened. So P5 also inherits label B from P2, uh, sorry, P3. Um, P3 writes, writes some data to P5, which P5 then reads, and then the channel is closed. And finally, a channel between P5 and the principal P4 is opened, at which point P4 inherits all the labels from, from P5, and data is written to P5. So you might say, big deal, what does that all mean? So, and just to make sure I don't screw this up, I have it written down here somewhere. If you go through this again, we could see these as processes on a system. And in operations one through four, O2 is created, which could be a, a malicious script, which P1, who might be a malicious user or, or process on the system, generates. And then in operations five through seven, somehow tricks P2 into executing the script. Um, operation eight, P1 gets rid of the evidence by deleting the script. And operation nine, maybe the result of executing the script, P2, who may have privileged um, uh, was it privilege runtime in, no. Who may have super user privileges, let's put it that way, um, spawns a new process. Who then, in the next operations, executes another file that was left there on the system by maybe some other malicious person or who knows what. And then receives some information from P3 upon which he performs some bad things to P4. So if you interpret the labels, the ABC, maybe as some sort of location information, then when examining the system and you have P5 still running, you have a notion of which locations actually played a part in this. Plus, P4 also receives this information and then maybe can make some conclusions from that. So um, in order to make any statements about my, my model, I, I had to extend it a little bit. And basically, I partitioned the set of principles on a system into those that can inherently generate a label and those who can't. And if, if there's more than one of such groups, then basically I require that you, you are able, by looking at the label, to say which group did it come from. Um, plus our label update function must actually preserve the labels that, that we are propagating. And in the example, I used the set union already. Um, plus I am defining what I call a potential information exchange path between two principles on the system. And as an informal definition is we have from this um, sequence of the total operations, this is a subset of those operations that directly lead to information being passed along. So it could be P1 write, writes to an object, 
another principle reads from the object and then that principle finally communicates with, with P2 and that's the direct chain of how the information was, was exchanged or potentially. Because remember in the beginning with um, undecidability, this is how information could have flown on the system. And um, basically, I require for that information exchange path that the read and write operations add up, meaning that if there's a channel open between two principles and there's already data in the channel before we write again to the channel with a different label set, then all that previous information has to be read before the new label set gets updated with the, with the principle through the read operation. And given these, these um, extensions to the model, I can give you these two properties and the third bullet is just a, a direct consequence of that. So if a label is bound at a principle P1 and there exists a potential information exchange path from P1 to P2, then the label will be present as part of P2's set. Furthermore, if, there is, if, if you find a label at P2, and P2 is not a principle that could have generated this label itself, um, then information must have been exchanged between P2 and the principle who could have generated this label. And as a consequence from that, um, we can see the absence of a label as a guarantee that no information was exchanged between a principle that could have generated a label um, through the channels that are supported in an actual implementation and not considering covert channels. So quickly, two case studies. Um, one is user influence. So we take the system processes as our principles and all the shared resources on a system are our objects. These are files, logs, global variables, whatever you have available on the system. The label set is actually the set of user IDs, which is a fixed size on a system because user, um, user IDs, I think they're, they're bound at kernel compilation or something, the number. And the actual binding of the label takes place when a user logs in through there are various programs who can do that, but usually it boils down to just a system call, set UID on Linux or set login on, on the BSD family. So basically the group of principles who can generate a label is limited to those who provide a login. Um, second case study, origin information. Um, we have the same subject world as in the previous example, processes on a system and shared objects. Um, but the labels now need to uniquely identify the source of the connection. And this could be a network, a network identifier. You can use the source port, destination port, and source addresses for TCP and UDP. Or you can even think of using information such as GPS information to, to convey origin here. And the binding in this case takes place when, when you accept data from a network. And this would be for TCP, the accept system call, or receive from for UDP. And this actually poses a problem 
for the current way that servers operate. Because the current way is you, you have a server who listens on a port, then the connection is accepted, then the server for, uh, forks the child process who handles the connection. And if we do that, then each time the server accepts a, uh, a, a connection, the label gets bound to the server process. So it's, it's very likely that this needs to be changed so that we can have an atomic accept, fork, and bind label to the child in order not to clutter up the, the server process with too much information. Um, I'm currently working on a proof of concept implementation by modifying the FreeBSD 4.12 uh, kernel. Um, I have a fixed set of possible labels. I'm primarily focusing on user IDs right now. Um, we have a global table of, of what the labels are and we only need to store a small vector um, of labels directly in the process table. So these are just, it's a bit vector of, of what's, what's there. Um, files are stored in a special file, which means we, we have them all in a central location and can easily determine which file has which label and also which label is contained in which <laughs> files. Um, the disadvantage of that is, is an added overhead when actually doing the updating by having to access the file. And um, for the update function, we only need to bitwise oring all these vectors in, in order to, to make the updates. Um, modifying system calls for the open, close, read, and write um, instances for both sockets and files, and I think pipes are actually a subset of, of one of these two. Um, the user information, as I described earlier, is bound at the set login system call and the network information at accept and then receive from calls. Um, other applications of this work, other than the forensic information I mentioned earlier, is network traceback, especially in conjunction with, uh, with the network identifiers. But you can use labels for access control as well. You can say, similar to, to the owner group world permissions you have on a system, you can certainly group locations together as well, location labels, and, and have local, a group of, of friendly locations and world permissions for, for files, for example. Um, further, you can, you can probably use labels for system administration by identifying certain processes on a system that you don't want to have certain labels, um, see how things actually flow on the system. Plus, you can use the information for intrusion detection as well. In conclusions, um, much of the desired information is currently not present or recorded, but we can probably make a lot of this happening depending on what your space considerations are. And especially process labels can, can, can help generating su some of the desired information, in, especially with the, with the examples of user influence and location information. And I've, I've demonstrated where else this, this work might be useful. So limitations, I've already mentioned a few of them. 
the first one, for example. The second one, it might be necessary to introduce no label flags for special files. Otherwise, the accumulation of labels for a process might be just too much if, if you never lose any labels. And this might be files that are written at the end of a login session and then accessed again at the start. This, this could be very um, hindering in, in capturing only the labels that were accumulated in a session itself. Um, plus, actually using processes might be might be a little bit too broad, um, especially for platforms that have many users who open up one session and then, then work in there for eight hours and then do everything from one session. I would expect that a lot of labels will be accumulated. Um, so you might actually try to find something else that fits it better, some sort of context based on maybe which user agent is executing um, at the time and, and associate the labels with those. Plus, um, location and peer-to-peer -peer networking probably is not a good idea because if you download a file from a thousand different sources, it would have a thousand labels associated with it. So right now, I'm probably aiming more at, at server systems that, that provide services to the system where you really don't, don't want any, any user action um, and anything that bypasses the server by some sort of exploit is, is bound with the location. And then if the system activity is there with those labels, that would, um, would be a more appropriate thing to, to notice than trying to track the, the location of, of a system with people running peer-to-peer -peer software, for example. Um, remaining in future work, um, I need to finish my proof of concept implementation and do a performance analysis and then determine actually what is a good balance between the number of labels I allow on the system versus the usability of the system. Because at some point I haven't talked about space consideration, but if you run out of label space, you have to make a decision on, on what you want to do. You can either drop labels, which is not good from a security perspective or you can deny operations which I think is, is the what's well, the more secure way to go but this will break things on a system so basically you need to determine what are the label requirements of well-behaved programs and make a decision on that and where you set that threshold how many labels do you allow a process for example um, another interesting thing might be label propagation across a network um, this way you could have true network traceback, meaning you have at some host where, where a user actually is located and sits and then does some stuff and he logs into a chain of hosts to, to launch an attack. You could use labels to actually propagate the original um, location information for that. Um, you can certainly incorporate labels into access control and I think those two actually go hand in hand if you want to go for a secure system that does support labels, meaning um, that certain label, certain processes with certain labels should not have access to everything. This way you could, for example, limit the, the rights of the root um, user if, if they carry some foreign label that probably is not a good idea and you can perform access control right there on that. 
Um, and finally, I've talked about introducing a lot of extra data to a system, quite quite a bit actually, if we take into consideration of that, that we potentially log every file operation now. Um, how can we actually process and analyze all this extra information that, that I'm suggesting here? And this concludes my talk. Um, are there any questions? Yes. How can we store, where did you store the vector for files? So store the labels for, 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 for files. Right now, right, right, right now I am storing them in a special file itself. Um, and I probably want to move to actually pushing that into the metadata of the file. Uh, because for the, uh, for the regular file system, does the metadata have uh, extra space to store the labels? What file system is that? Uh, in the, in the, any common regular file system, like the ext2 or 3, is there any extra space to store the labels? Or, the, or you, need, you need to modify the file system? Yes, file, file systems will have to be modified if I want to store them with a file directly. But right now I'm storing them just in a file. It's, it's a mapping. It's a file name vector mapping. Okay. And it's, it's just a proof of concept implementation. If you, modify, if you wanted to modify the file system, you could either see if you have some leftover space in an inode somewhere, which is very unlikely. You probably have to dedicate an extra block and... and do it that way. But suppose you just have a uh, label with only a uh, fixed space, maybe uh, suppose have only a 32 bit. Yes. Maybe this is reasonable. Well, 32 bit might not buy you a whole lot. But uh, yes, yeah. So, but, but yeah, you'd have to see where you can find space. Okay, any other questions? Well, then I thank you very much. Yeah, I, 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 I